0: Good morning. I'm Joe Collins. Welcome to See Me Church. We're glad you're here. Our mission is to love God and love people. And I want to say a thank you to our worship team, our song leaders. Uh, they did a tremendous job this morning. It's great to be part of a church where we mix it up. Today was a bit old school. We went all acapella today, a little old school. Last week, we had an amazing worship with the band. It was very powerful, but it's nice from time to time to just change things. And so I want to thank the part singers and the song leader, Mike, for doing such a great job. Thank you very much. Really was tremendous. So last week, uh, my friend Gary came and preached to us, and he preached about living by faith, and he did a great job. Well, today I want to talk about generosity. So there was this guy. And he was talking to God, and he said to God, God, is it true that to you a billion years is like one second? God said, yeah, I suppose it is. And then the guy said, well, is it also true that a billion dollars is like one penny? And God said, well, yes, of course. And the guy said, well, God, can I have a penny? And he said, in a second. Sometimes... Whenever I uh, find myself talking about generosity, at some point, I'm going to end up talking about money. Now, I recognize that we're all in different places financially. I also recognize that we have people here who aren't members of the church. And if that's the case, I hope you can enjoy the sermon. Just, uh, uh, you know, be an observer, enjoy it, because this sermon is primarily for the members of the church. Maybe you'll get something out of it, I hope you do, but please understand that that's who I'm targeting specifically today in the message. It's always funny to me when someone comes to church for the first time, in my experience, it happens more often than not. I should say it happens so often that it can't be coincidence that a person is there for the first time and somehow the message is about money. Now, I don't know what God does that for Maybe God wants you to hear the message And every time you show up to church He's trying to deal with something in your life I don't know But I can promise you this If you come back, we don't talk about money very often I, I you know, Maybe you've heard that before But I can promise you that's the case We bring it up from time to time Because we need to Jesus certainly brought it up By the way, to give me a little bit of cover here the two subjects that Jesus talked more than anything about in the Bible is number one, sin, and number two, money. money. So he talked a lot about it. I don't think as a minister I'm doing right if I don't spend some time talking about it, but I want you to understand that I under, I know and I recognize that this is a touchy subject. It's very personal. We're all in different places. And by no means is anything I, I say intended to be targeted to any one person. I'm, shooting a shotgun out. I'm giving generalizations. I'm giving principles. And it's for you to figure out how to apply them. Okay. Thanks, bro. Is that okay? Yes. 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 Reach off. I was having coffee with my friend Peter last week, and I was giving him a little preview of the message today. And he gave me some really good advice. He, he, uh, he encouraged me to, to think about our relationship as I progress through this message. And what he meant by that is that whenever I preach, this is what he said, is whenever I'm preaching, I deliver a message It goes from my lips to your ears. And then it's sort of yours to do with as you feel fit. At that point, it becomes yours between you and God. But when I talk about giving generosity, money, or something like that, there is a subtle shift that happens in the communication between us. Because I am supported by you. I exist, my job position is it exists or is created because of the giving of you. And so when I deliver from my lips to your ears, it doesn't just get left there between you and God. I'm still in it. Because there is an element of a conflict of interest. There is a, an element here where I can come off self-serving. Because I'm talking to you about giving and I am being paid through your giving. Let me make something very clear in our church. We're very blessed to be part of a larger family of churches worldwide, as a matter of fact. And here in our family of churches in the LA area, we have a central administration, and we have decided as a church that every minister is paid by a certain is paid a salary according to a certain scale. So if I get you all to give a tremendous amount of money and, and we become the, the the richest church in our family of churches, I don't get paid anymore. So take that out of your mind, right? I I don't get a bonus for, hey, Joe, you increased the giving in your church by 15%. Here's a a 10% bonus. That doesn't happen. So hopefully that removes a little bit of the feeling of this being self-serving. But nonetheless, I am still supported by you, my wife and I, and our interns, and we are all incredibly grateful. And I want to say on the front end how grateful we are for every one of you and the generosity that you have displayed over many years in Simi Church. We've been around coming up on five years, four or five years now. How great is that? Maybe it's four years. I don't add well, but maybe it's uh, (laughs) one of those. And we are here and thriving because of the gifts and the generosity and the blessings that you've shared with us, and I cannot thank you enough. That being said, if I've ever at any time in my past, and I'm sure I have, I'm, I'm a sinner, If I have ever put you in a position where you felt guilted, pressured, inappropriately pushed into giving in a way that you don't feel good about, let me be the first to say I'm sorry. I've probably done it. I'm sure it's inadvertent. It's not intentional. It's not my point. It's not what I want. It's not my heart. But it happens. And I want to just say at the front end that I apologize. And if it happens today, talk to me afterwards. I'll be the first to say sorry. But I'm trying to get you to understand that that's not my intention today. By no means do I want anyone to leave here and feel pressured, coerced, manipulated, or guilted into doing anything that your conscience and your faith is not allowing you to do. And so I'm not going to be talking about giving our money directly. It's going to come up. It's going to be part of the message. We're going to have some explanation. But my goal is not to get you to give an amount It's to create in you and in me and in our church a culture of generosity. Because I believe if we create the culture, then God has so much room to work. And he can multiply whatever our gifts are and use them in a tremendous way. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning, for this time to be together, for this great group of people. And I pray now that you open up all of our hearts, myself included, help us to drink deeply of your word and be inspired by what we read and moved, God, in our faith to be closer to you. God, help us to walk out of here a step closer in creating that culture of generosity that will be a blessing to us and to so many others in our community. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 14, first book of the Bible, some 4,000 years ago. And I'm going to read quite a bit of a section of Genesis chapter 14. Bear with me, and you'll see what I mean as I read. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch king of Elessar, Kirtalamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bishra, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shember, king of Zeboin, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these later kings joined forces in the valley of Sidom, that is, the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they had been subject to Kertalamr, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kerdelammer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites in came in the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shavah kiratham and the Horites in the hill country of Ser as far as El-Paranir, the desert. Then they turned back and went to An-Mishphath, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amicalites as well as the Amorites who were living in the Hazaron area. Tamar. Then the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kirtalamr, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyam, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. I have no idea who's the four and who the five are at this point.
1: <laughs>
0: now, the valley of Sodom was full of tar pits. And when the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. There was all, They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. It's funny how many parentheses where it says, that is Zoar, that is Kadesh. It's almost like when he was writing it, he was realizing, oh man, this is going to confuse everybody. Let me put a couple of little pieces in there to make it clear. <laughs> yeah. You ever wonder why the Bible is full of passages like this? There's, there's just certain places in the Bible you're like, what is going on? There's just so much detail there and, and it's more than I can put together and I can't follow it. You ever wonder why it does that? Yeah. Well, the answer is simple. It does it for credibility. What, what you're reading here is, a, is, a, is an account of a battle that occurred some 4,000 years ago. And the authors wanted people to know that this was a real event that happened in real time in real human history. And they put to great extent to put some details in there so that it could be verified. Otherwise, we would say, ah, oh, it was made up. Or maybe it was a fable. But no, We now have historical references to kings and locations, etc., and what that does is it gives us a way to orient time and place and go back, archaeologists have done this, by the way, countless times, and they dig it up, and they go, wow, this is exactly where the Bible said it would be, and wow, there's evidence of a battle, and how amazing is that? And then what does that do? It validates the Bible. If you take nothing else away from my message today, take this away, You can take God at his word. It has been tried and tested, washed, dipped, deep fried, dry cleaned in every possible way. People have examined the Bible to try to find anything, any error. And time and time again, it turns out to be accurate and is even today still the best source of ancient archaeology in the near Middle East of any reference we have because of how accurate and detailed it is. And so it gives me a lot of comfort and it really builds my faith to know that when I read the Bible, I'm reading truth. We say in our church, it is the best source of truth in our world today. And we believe that. But being 4,000 years ago or 4,000 removed from these events, I'm going to admit to you, it is confusing. And when I was preparing the message, I was reading this over and over and over. I tried to write the names down. I was trying to, and, and, and it's all messed up. The first list of names is different than the third list of names. It's the same names, but in different order. And then there's a list of kings and, and cities in the middle. And it was just confusing. And I just was like, I can't, what is going on? I have no idea. How is there four versus five when I read 16 kings? There's 16, I think, if my math is right. Not to worry. So I go online and I dig and dig and dig and I like, I love this stuff and I like to research and I came across one of the most helpful uh, websites for this passage in particular, probably help with others, but it's run by a guy named Jerry Wells. It's called wellsbiblestudy.com and he does an amazing job of making these PowerPoints that sort of explain what happened. Now, I've been looking forward to doing this with you. I'm laughing, and you'll see why in a minute. Um, but Jerry's an old guy. And so, even though it's PowerPoint, it reminds me of the days of Microfish. And of when I, of health class, when you saw the, you had the health film on a reel-to-reel, and there was no audio, and so you had a tape that had to play the audio, but they weren't synced, and so you had to, like, push them at the same time, and then the audio would beep when it told you to flip to the new reel. Do you remember those days? Some of you remember those days. I remember those days. So... Some of you are like, now I'm even more confused. What are you talking about? You had to live through it to experience the glory of technology 25 years ago. (laughs) No, how old am I? Whatever it is. 30 years ago now. I'm 50. No, even more. 40 years ago. We have come a long way. So, if you'll humor me, because I can't help but feel very sentimental, and, and I get a little like encouraged by watching this, because it's it's heartwarming. What's the word they say? Quaint. It's very quaint. But Jerry Wells does a great job, and by the time I'm done clicking through these slides, you are going to know what the heck we just read. Okay? So let's have some fun. There's audio and some uh, PowerPoint. Enjoy.
1: you have a list of the four kings that made war with the five kings of the valley of Sittah. In Genesis chapter 14, verses 2-3, through three, you have a list of the five kings of the valley of Sittah. The five kings of the valley of Sittah, for twelve years they served the king of Eli. In the thirteenth year, they rebel. <laughs> the four kings destroyed seven cities before they had war with the five kings of the valley of Siddim. Oh. <laughs> In Genesis chapter fourteen, verses eight through ten, the four kings then had war with the five kings of the valley of Siddim. Uh,
0: oh, sorry, I messed that up. Start over.
1: In Genesis chapter 14 verses 8 through 10: The four kings then a war with the five kings in the valley
0: of Siddim and overcame them. Thank you, Jerry. Hopefully, now you understand what I just read. Made it pretty simple. Basically, there were four kings in the east who were uh, um, who decided to make war against five kings in the valley of Siddim because they stopped paying their tribute. But along the way, they decided to conquer seven other cities in the process. And the reason why they did that, at least we do not I wasn't there, but uh, looking at it geographically, is they basically conquered all of the, the kingdoms that surrounded the Valley of Siddam, and they were in the high country. So in essence, what they did is they took the high ground, the four kings... And when the, when the five kings came out to fight them, they were, the battle was over before it started. They were at a massive disadvantage. The four kings routed the five kings and took away all their people and all their plunder. That's what we read in all of those lists of names. That's what happened. But you know, Genesis chapter 14 is more, is, is, is about a lot more than just international conflicts. It's also about two people. In this case, it's about a guy named Abram and his nephew, Lot. Now, I want to give you a little explanation about Abram and Lot. It's it's quite an emotional story. if If you meditate on it and let yourself go there, it's a very emotional story. Abram's father was a man named Terah. He lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. That was one of the four kingdoms years before he lived there that came over to invade and conquer these five kings. It's actually in modern-day Iraq, Iran area. And while he was there, he had two boys, Abram and Namor. Namor had a son named Lot. Abram was married but had no children. Namor died, so Lot lost his dad. Terah moved from Ur of the Chaldeans north into an area called Haran. Don't know why, grief, sadness, I don't know, but he moved. He took his son Abram and his grandson Lot. When they settled in Haran after some time, Terah died. And that's where Abram was living, who we call Abraham today, when God called him and said, follow me or go to the place I will show you. Abram, who we call Abraham today, is the father of the three main faiths, monotheistic faiths in the world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. We all trace our connection back to Abram and his decision to follow God. Now, Islam has a different understanding of God than the Judeo-Christian tradition, but we all trace our heritage there. So what does Abram do? Abram picks up his nephew Lot, he adopts him, and he takes him with him all the way to the journey into the land of Canaan. Now along the way, they They actually pass through Canaan. They don't stay there very long, and they end up in Egypt for a time. But they eventually make their way back into Canaan. And along the way, God blesses Abraham incredibly. He becomes incredibly wealthy, extremely powerful, successful. And so does his nephew, Lot. He's sort of connected to Abraham. November, I lost my aunt. In December, her oldest daughter died as well. There were two girls in that family. Their their father had died several years ago. The only remaining person in that family is my cousin. I call her Nietzsies. Yeah, Elenita. I've been talking to her a lot. She's incredibly alone. She's lost everybody in her family. That's all she says, is how alone I am. It's just me. That's Lot. Lot lost his dad. He lost his grandfather. All he had left in the world was Abram. Thank God for Abram, who loved Lot and took him with him. And because of their relationship, Lot was blessed by being with Abram. They end up in the land of Canaan together, And they're so successful together that they have to separate because their possessions, their their herds are interfering with each other. So Abram, like any loving uncle who doted on his nephew, who maybe spoiled him, who maybe indulged him because of the hardship, because of the pain and the suffering that Lot would have had felt through his life because of his journey, Abram was pretty lenient. And he said to Lot, hey, we got to split up. Why don't you take first dibs on where you want to go. And so Lot says, okay. And Lot chooses the good land, the well-watered area, down the valley, Abraham's up in the hill country there, in the valley of Siddom, near the city of Sodom. And that's how Lot ended up there. And so when this war breaks out, Lot gets captured as part of the four kings' campaign into the valley of Siddim and taken away into captivity. Now I have a whole another sermon that I'm not going to teach today about Lot. In my study, he's become very interesting to me because Lot, the Bible tells us later, that he was a righteous man who was tormented. You ever feel like that? I feel that way. I want to do what's right. I want to be a righteous man, but boy, there's just a lot of hardship and challenge out there and, there, and sometimes it's all by, you know, I bring it on myself, I make stupid and bad choices, and I get tormented. That was Lot. And I can't blame him. I mean, maybe Abraham spoiled him a bit, and you could understand why. But you know, Lot made a lot of bad decisions. For instance, when Abraham said, hey, let's split up, you, you, you pick first, by all means, Lot should have said, no, 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 uncle. You've been taking care of me. You get first choice. But no, Lot was probably a little spoiled. He said, okay, I'll go first, and I want the best land. <laughs> and it happens to be down in this area with these cities that are exceptionally evil. Let me just give you an idea. The capital city, Sodom, the name Sodom means burning. And the king, Bera, who we mentioned in the, in the list, his name means son of evil. So Lot made us his neighbors the the son of evil near burning city. Not the best decision making on Lot's part. I have a whole lesson on that. Can't share it today. But I do want to leave you with this thought. Bad decisions produce bad results. The flip side is true, though. Good decisions produce good results. And in the example of Lot and Abraham, you have both of those stories played out. Abraham made good decisions, he followed God, he took care of his family. He did all the things he was supposed to do. By no means was he perfect, but he was blessed by God. Lot, on the other hand, when he wasn't around Abraham, made a lot of bad decisions and resulted in a lot of bad outcomes. For instance, being taken into captivity by four kings of the East. Part of me as a parent would say, Abraham, let him suffer for a little while. Maybe had he not chased Lot down, Maybe Lot would have learned a few things and been a really good guy. And maybe a whole book about Lot would have been written of how righteous he was in the land of the east, like Daniel. But no, Abraham, like any loving person who cared so deeply for his nephew, who had suffered so much and, and had been in so much, his story, his journey was so hard, Abraham couldn't let that happen. Abraham was moved in his heart. To go and save Lot. I think about this idea of bad decisions, bad outcomes, good decisions, good outcomes, and I, in the context of giving, in the context of money, and, and I have to be the first to admit, and I hope that you, many of you, there's some of you that it doesn't apply to, would admit that oftentimes our problems financially come from bad decisions. We want to say California is too expensive. It is expensive. But bad decisions make it a whole lot worse. And it's easy to say, well, let me make a good decision. I'm going to get out. It's the good choice to make. But you still go with you. And you'll still make those decisions no matter where you are in AA they call that doing a geographic <laughs> the idea is let me run away from my problems and they'll go away but the problem is you're the problem <laughs> and so it comes with you wherever you go and i'm the first to admit that i'm not here to shame anyone or make i mean I, you know this is a convicting message to me i'd have a lot i'd be in a lot better shape financially i'm in the same boat as everybody else it's tight it's hard we're struggling we're doing what we can but I'd be in a lot better shape if I made better decisions pretty much every day. Instead of eating out or going to Jack in a Box, I'd be in better shape. Nothing else. But probably I'd be in better off financially, right? So I think we gotta be willing here, and I know I know this can be self serving. I've already tried to say I don't get paid anymore for this. But I think we've got to be willing to be humble here and accept the fact. That wherever we're at in life, if it's not where we could have been, it's usually because of the decisions we've made. Right. The lifestyle we've decided to live in. And 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 that's probably the lesson for a lot. Again, that's a whole other sermon. Now I'm in that. i got to get back out of that. I don't want to teach that sermon right now. But that's kind of the idea. It's one of the reasons why, by the way, I want to just thank, say thank you publicly to Tony and Candy Strait. Because these are two people who are an incredible example of people who made radically awesome good decisions and got radically awesome good results. They turned their financial situation around, some of you heard them share, I don't know how much money in debt you started out at, but it was over 100000 $110,000 and in how many years? Three years paid off, out of debt and able to, to have a, a single income and candy, live at home and raise their baby while Tony goes and works. Glowing example of good decisions that produce good results. And what's even more awesome is they have volunteered to lead Financial Peace University. It's a program designed to help people uh, get out of financially bad decision-making processes and make better decisions so that you can have the life you wanna have, regardless of whether you live in LA, California, or New Mexico. It can happen. And I wanna say thank you, because they're wanting to give that back. And so they've started a class, Two people in the community. We open it up and said, this is good good for all people. It's not just for us. We want to help all people. We want something for people, not from them. They open it up. Two people from the community have signed up. I don't know how many of you might have, but if you're considering it, please do so. This is a good decision. Okay, enough about Lot. Bad decisions. Back to the story. Verse 13. A man who escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Escaland, Aner, and all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That was about 100 miles north. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He received all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kirtulammer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shabbat. That is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, "Blessed be Abram of God, by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand." Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Back to Jerry. So he took the
1: goods of Solomon and Bar with Lot and other people. <laughs> In Genesis chapter 14 verses 13 through 16, when Abraham found out what happened, Abraham armed 318 of his strange servants born in his own house and went after them. Abraham brought back all the goods, people, and law. On their way back, the that, king of Salem and priest of God Bless Abraham. Abraham gave
0: you know, him all they had. So you, now you kind of follow the story. It's pretty simply laid out. Abraham is successful. Now, it's interesting. Nobody knows. Abraham had 318 trained soldiers that were born in his house. That's a pretty rich dude, right there. He had his own private army. Yeah. He allied with two other guys that he was friends with, and they went up and they attacked those four kings. I don't know if he defeated all four kings; if it was just sort of a a battle in the rear, and you know, was a we don't know. The Bible seems to be vague on it, but it kind of leaned towards the idea of a miracle. Like, hey, Abraham did something; God did something incredible here, way beyond Abraham's ability. But in the process, Abraham wins this great battle, brings all these captives and all the loot with him back. And on the way back to Mamre, he passes by a city called Salem. It's now called Jerusalem. And as he's passing by, the king of that city, Melchizedek, comes out and says, Abraham, you got this incredible victory. He was a king and priest of God Most High, and this is all because of God. He steers him to God, and Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. Not of his share, not of what he personally kept, but Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Generous. Generosity. I chose this story and this passage for today because I have talked to many people who are incredibly generous. And on one occasion, I was talking to one of them and I asked them, what made you become so generous? I mean, what was it in your thinking that changed that you went from being like everyone else maybe even tithing out of his income and deciding to be incredibly generous and going way beyond that. And he said to me, I read this story and realized that Abraham gave out of everything, not just out of his personal stuff. And this person is a successful businessman. And so what he would do is at the end of every year, he would tithe off of his personal income, which was substantial. And then he would look at the net or the gross that his company made, which was in the millions, and he would tithe off of that. Because of Abraham's example of giving a tenth of everything. Now, what's funny about that is I, had I not had I interrupted him, I might have said, bro, that's awesome. You're giving a tithe. You're doing fine. You're paying yourself a salary. Give the tithe. And I might have stopped him inadvertently from giving the additional amount based on his overall net worth because in my mind a tithe limited I mean I thought it was the ceiling but in his case it limited what he would have what he does isn't that interesting how we have this weirdness about tithing and we have these oh should we teach it should we not you know we did a survey amen By and large, everyone said we feel great about tithing. That's a good thing. But the point is, tithing is not intended to be the number or the cap. It's intended, uh, well, it, it it was just something Abraham did. And so I can go around and teach tithing and inadvertently cap the giving potential at 10%. And so I've realized that focusing on tithing or a specific amount is actually not what God intended with this passage. The idea was to get the heart of Abraham. And Abraham's heart was to be generous. And he defined generosity way bigger than what I would have defined generosity at. And like my friend, who his generosity was much greater than mine. Saying all this to say that I agree, we did a survey and some of you gave feedback, and I agree with you. Focusing on a number is probably counterproductive because it might end up capping us at that number when there are people out there who would like to go well beyond that number because generosity is something that you decide, not me. One of my favorite responses in the survey came from someone who said, the question was, do you believe in tithing and the answer basically was no. I think I, w- I, I want to give more. That's generosity. That's what we're trying to create in Simi Church. A culture of generosity. A culture that's similar to what Abraham's experience was. To be generous. This all brings me to my, my main point I want to drive home today. Why? did Abraham do it? You may not know this, but before Abraham, there's no mention of tithing in the Bible. People gave, but it just says they gave or they gave the first or they gave the best, but it doesn't have a number. It just says they gave. Maybe there was some unwritten oral tradition that Abraham was following. I don't know. Or maybe Abraham just thought, "Mm, 10% sounds good, and he threw that in there. I have no idea why he chose 10%, and that's why I don't want to focus on 10%. I want to focus on generosity, because prior to Abraham, there was no specific number. So, So why? Why did he do it? And more importantly, why did he give off of everything? Why didn't he just say, well, hey, my share is this, and I'm going to give a tenth of my share. Why did he give off of everything? I just think because Melchizedek said, God did this. You have what you have because God did this. Remember Gary's story last week about the father with his two sons, and they're eating at Larson's. And he read the menu of Larson's, and there was the one son that chose the $17 salad, pecan, pecan, pecan. What did he say? Pecan, pecan salad. <laughs> and the other son chose the $175 Kobe steak. And the dad says, "Hey, I'd like one of your pecans." And the son has an attitude and throws a couple onions his way. And he turns around, and the other son is already cutting his steak in half and offering half to his dad, without even being asked. That son understood that everything he had in that moment, that stake, was because of his father. Abraham understood, and Melchizedek reminded him and us, that everything we have is because of our God, our Father in heaven. And if we want to clutch onto it, bad decision. But if we hold it open-handedly and and just allow God to, to take what he takes and we have a spirit of generosity, that's a good decision. And I believe Abraham was moved by this incredible victory. The odds were against him. There was no chance he could beat these four kings. But he did. He rescued these people and he brought them home. That's the why. God gave it to him. He gave him the victory. But I'm going to go a step further. He loved Lot. Abraham had a why but he also had a because of. Why? God's given me the victory. Because I love Lot. I got Lot back. Imagine. Imagine losing your best friend, your son, your daughter, your wife, your husband, your parent. And then imagine getting them back. What wouldn't you give to have them back? Somebody asked Tiger Woods one time, in all of history, who would you like to play one round of golf with? You know, Jesus Christ, Gandhi, the president, George Washington. And without missing a beat, Tiger Woods said, my dad. His dad had recently died. And there was nothing he wouldn't give to have his dad back. I lost my dad. Some of you have lost a parent. Our, our dear friend Carlos's mom is in hospice right now. Please be praying. But he's going to lose her. And we were talking this morning. He was in tears. I'm in tears because of it. What wouldn't you give to have someone back? Abraham had a why, but he also had a because of. And that's what made him generous. I have ushers here, and they're going to hand out a card right now, so we'll take a minute. Hopefully, they'll get them passed out here to you quickly. I want everyone to take one card, please. It's a pledge card, and before you freak out, I'm not going to take this pledge card. It's your pledge card. I don't want it. It's for you. I don't care if you throw it away. Do whatever you want with it, but I hope you would at least give it a try for yourself. I did it for me. It says on the bottom of the card, I give because... And I wrote in there, I give because God saved me, and I want him to save my family too. That's my why, and that's my because of. I want you to take some time in prayer and write down your why and your because of. I believe that's the first two steps in creating a a culture of generosity. We have to have a why, and we have to have a because of. Why and who am I doing this for? If I don't have somebody I'm doing it for, why give the money? I could just keep it for myself. But I'm giving the money because I'm doing it for someone. Hopefully you'll do that sometime this week. Make it a, a personal thing that you do. Write down your why and write down your who. You're because of. Now I want to talk about specifics for a minute. I want to talk about the what and the how much. I said at the beginning, this is just information. This is not intended to put any burden, guilt, pressure on anyone. It's just a desire to be transparent and to give you information. Before I do, though, I do want to address this issue of tithing and the theology of tithing. I've taught on tithing a handful of times in the last few years. Like I told you before, if you come back next Sunday, we won't be talking about tithing. <laughs> we do it periodically. But I talked about it, but I've talked about it from time to time. And, and, and from, sometimes people will, will send me emails. And there'll be like an article about should we, should we not teach tithing? Or I had one person send me a book on you shouldn't teach tithing. I had another person you know, say, oh, great, I love when you teach on tithing. Other people say, well, the theology of tithing, I've gotten little dissertations from people, uh, and I love it because you're reading your Bible, and you're digging deep, and it's awesome, but you'll give me your whole theology on tithing, and I read them, and I learn. I love it. Some of them are awesome. But all that aside, I want you to realize one thing. Actually, I want you to realize two things before I get into the what and the and the, and the how much. The first thing you got to realize is that Abraham tithed before there was any theology on tithing. He was the first to do it. There was no playbook. There was no command. There were no scholars explaining all the ins and outs of tithing. He's the guy that said it. So what we're talking about here is before theology. It predates it. This is not intended to be theological. It's intended to be heart, a a, a, a mindset, an idea, a concept that hopefully you'll go and embed into your heart and express it however God leads you to express it. The second thing, oh, to put it this way, I like what uh, this author John Kurson said. He said, tithing is not God's way of raising cash, it's God's way of raising kids. I love that phrase. Let's not worry about the theology right now. Let's just understand the concept and the heart behind it. Number two, the second thing I want you to know is, as I, and I said this before, my goal is not to cap us at 10% because there are those that would give more. But the goal is to create a culture, a mindset, a way of thinking in our church that's based on generosity. Like my friend who tithed off of his all of his possessions, not just his income. So now let's talk about numbers, specifics. The pledge. My pledge says increase my giving by $15 per week. My wife says the same thing. So in our family, we're going to increase our giving by $30 per week for 2019. We chose that number because I went and looked at our budget and I realized that if we wanna become self-supported as a church, which is hopefully a goal, well, it's a goal I have, because mm-hmm. if we're not self-supported, we won't be around much longer, but we have time, There's no, it's not dire, we're not sinking, we have money that was gifted to us and we're using it. But it would be nice to get break-even, just like it would be nice for you to get break-even in your family, so that money could be used for more interns more staff, whatever, more projects, right, to do more for God. But in order to get to the break-even point, it would require, on average, everyone giving $15 more per week. I'm not saying everyone can do that. It's not even a good idea for everyone to do that. Some of you are in situations where you're doing the best you can, and praise God, keep doing it. But others can, and others can go beyond. And so if, in general, If we're able to increase the giving by $15 per week, per member, we become self-supported overnight. That may not happen this year. It may not happen next year. It's just a goal. We're just trying to get there so we can stand on our own two feet and be a church that gives to others. So that was my pledge. The reason why I did the pledge card, and again, if you're visiting, I told you, this is Inside baseball. Enjoy. Don't feel any obligation. If you're a member, same thing. No judgment. Just take it at face value. Do what you will. But the reason why I did the pledge card is because I watched a documentary on Emmett Smith. Now, I hate pledge cards. I grew up in this church. We did a lot of pledge cards in the old days. I don't know who's been around as long as I've been, but some of you remember, and. Uh, they burnt the idea of pledge cards for me forever. That bridge got burnt. I don't like them. I don't think they're a good idea. And then I sit down and I watch this documentary on Emmett Smith. He was a Hall of Fame running back for the Dallas Cowboys. And the story was that when he was in youth football, uh, he, his high school that he went to was a terrible high school. They, they Losing for like two years in a row. I don't think they had any wins. They got a new head coach. He started high school his first season and the head coach got the whole team together and gave everybody a three by five card and told them to write down their goals on a three by five card. Or their, their dreams on a three by five card. And then every player glued it inside their locker. So he didn't collect them, he just they kept them, but they put them inside their locker. Emma Smith wrote three goals down, and by the end of his first season, he accomplished every one of his dreams. He wanted to be the leading scorer, the leading rusher, and something else. In his first year in high school football, he he did all three. So he did it again. He graduated high school, the all-time leading rusher at his high school. I think he was the all-time state leading rusher. He went to college, University of Miami, Division One football school. He did the same thing. He wrote his goals down. He wanted to retire or wanted to leave college as the number one leading rusher at the University of Miami all time, and he did. He got drafted in the NFL and some of you that are football fanatics might remember this. There's a video of it. He was interviewed at the draft day when he was drafted and they said, what's your goal? And he said, I want to become the all time leading rusher in football. This was a snot nosed kid out of college who nobody had, you know, gave him much. He might play three, four years kind of thing. He became the all time leading rusher in football. The documentary went all the way back to his high school coach. Dwight Thomas was his name. And they asked him, what was the point of the 3x5 card? And he said, if you don't write it down, it won't happen. And I went, we'll do a pledge card.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I'm not keeping it. Put it in your locker. Do what you do with it. Set your goal. Let it be your goal of generosity. In fact, I would even encourage you to scratch the word pledge out and just say my generous goal or my goal for generosity. I don't care what you write. It's for you to put down and pray about, and maybe one day God will help you accomplish it. And how great would that be? Because generally, if God is blessing you to the point where you can increase your giving and be generous, your life is being elevated along the way. And that's not a bad thing. So here's my ask prayerfully consider making a pledge. If you can, increase your giving. If you can't, continue to give generously. If you lost a job and you got to reduce it, that's totally understandable. If you're able to give more, give more. If you can hit the goal of 15, if you can go beyond, great. It's for you. And then we'll put it into God's feet, and we'll see what he does. We're going to conclude. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what uh, my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshgal, and Marmory. Let them have their share. Last, Jerry Wells' video.
1: The king of Sodom meets Abraham, as assured by Abraham that he will receive all that is his.
0: Years. So, along with Melchizedek, the son of Evil, king of the city of Burning, <laughs> shows up and wants his people back. And Abraham and he says, "You keep all the loot; I'll take the people." And Abraham says, "I don't want a dime." of your stuff. I wonder if Abraham knew the negative impact Bera was having on his nephew Lot. If you raise a kid and you ever see them get around the wrong kid, your protective juices flow. Abraham was like, "I want nothing from you because I don't want ever anyone ever to tell you tell me that you made me rich because God wanted all the credit. Abraham wants all the credit to go to God and God alone. Whether we become self-supporting this year or next year or sometime in the future, or whether it never happens, we'll live with the result. And we will give God all of the glory. Let's stand. We're going to go arm in arm and close out in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are forever indebted to you. At the end